God, that's a long latency. <laughs> Let me just uh, click this button and, uh, and also click this button. Uh, there we go. Lovely. Cracking stuff. Can everyone hear me? Pop a, pop a, as usual, pop a little, um, a little tick, a little shout in the box uh, to just know that the audio is all working happily. And then, um, uh, yes, that seems like, yeah, I'm thinking it's all coming through. Good. Good. So there's some, some radio silence in the chat. Everyone's sort of waiting for things to happen. Everyone can hear me. Marvellous. Right, I'm going to go big face. Hello, everyone. Oh, what a week we've had, eh? What a week. Uh, I hope everyone's well. We're on episode 40, the 41st episode of Rail Matter, isn't that? That's quite something, isn't it? Oh, dear me. 40 episodes. Well, 41 episodes, 40 official episodes. Oh, crikey. Yes, I always come in quiet, Lewis. Yeah, it's because, I, I, you know, it's um, quality, not quantity. It's a bit dingy in here. At some point, I'll have a light there that means that I don't look bleached out and, and kind of red in the face, but that's fine. I'm not worried too much about that. Uh, oh, dear me, what a week. We're nearly... Um, <laughs> We're nearly, uh, we're nearly through this year, this strange year. We're, we're rapidly approaching it. In fact, this is the last, and we'll come to this later, this is, in fact, the last live episode of Rail Natter this year. The last live episode of Rail Natter this year. Crikey. That is quite something. Anyway, today we are talking about, let's go back to No Face. We are talking about, um, we're talking about four, actually, I've said we're talking about four fatal derailments that changed the permanent way for good. Um, it's true in that I'll be talking in detail about four accidents, but actually I'm going to be talking about five fatal derailments. Uh, so I'll probably go into detail about four of them, but I will be alluding to five, uh, and I'll explain why as we go through the episode. In any case, um, I, yeah, it only remains to really crack on. It's 1902, let's get started. So what's going on in the world? Because we have to start off with the news uh, of course, as is traditional, uh, I've been trying to keep this up every uh, as frequently as I can. Um, let's have a look at the uh, the COVID uh, ridership stats. Latest release comes out on Wednesday, so this is today's release. Um, and you can see that rail during the the kind of the last lockdown is pretty much flatlined. Uh, yeah, it's not not great. What is that? Twenty two percent ish, twenty two, twenty three percent, and it's climbed again as lockdown has ended and things have been returning to whatever this sort of form of kind of multi-tier normality as you can see it's immediately started climbing again as has bus usage and car usage once you get once again is climbing and as ever you see there's a direct there's an inverse relationship between car usage and uh cycle uh ridership as well so rather depressingly and also that see that dashed line that's still there uh from where we if 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 we had managed to keep on top of you know had an effective test and trace uh you know test track and trace uh, regime uh, and sort of generally kept on top of things more uh, and indeed probably just had overall I don't know had a, had a better more rigorously upheld lockdown regime not necessarily a stricter one but a more a more logical one for people to follow uh, we might well have found ourselves with back to full full throttle by the end of the year however it was not to be and as you can see rail is just sort of petered out through the year with lack of any sort of coherent sort of plan from government to reverse the situation uh, and indeed, that's continued. Talking of which, oh, we've got a question. Uh, people, a lot, lots of people are saying things. Ah, yeah, we'll 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 come on to which incidents they are shortly. 
Um, David Shepard, how does the government do what you want at Christmas period fit in with what the trains are doing? It doesn't really. There's no coherence at all across it. So I don't know what Boris has just said. I presume basically do the same, but uh, I'd, I, I'm not going to shout at you if you completely flout the rules and wreck everything, but please don't or something like that. I don't know. Something basically incoherent. Uh, and as a result, uh, trains will continue not having anyone riding them. So, yeah. Uh, travel by train over Christmas. I'd recommend it. It's a very busy time for the railways usually. Uh, so very busy with people traveling in the run-up to Christmas because... Lots of students on their way home. Lots of people who kind of you know catch the train on their way back to families, even who would not who normally have the car locally. Perhaps usually a very busy time for the railways. Let's see what happens to ridership, shall we? But I'm not holding my breath. In any case, what else is on the news? What else is on the news? Oh yeah, we've got Sir John Armit's voice. Oh, and I've got I've put the I've put the car on in front of the uh, in front of the. Subtitles. It doesn't matter really because my plan is to just talk over this video. This is a video referring to the National Infrastructure Commission's latest report, um, which I'm. Uh, am I pleased to say? No, I'm not pleased to say. Uh, it's 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 dreadful. It's an absolutely dismal report. Um, it has it has managed to, no matter what it's actually saying in the report, it's worded. It's been written in such a way and structured in such a way, um, so as to essentially. Um, provide an ex basically it says to ditch the eastern leg of uh of the leeds leg of hs2 and it also says to ditch the liverpool spur of, of northern Paris rail and actually it basically says to ditch northern Paris rail as a as a fully segregated line as well it's just dismal it's economic it, it's a report that has been written by the treasury with pressure from gilligan with zero understanding of the way the rail in industry or particularly the rail network works from a timetabling from an operational perspective it's it's been written by people who don't understand railways, and it's a report about railways. It's staggering, absolutely staggering. I have, I yeah, I cannot uh, this this on yeah. So someone else has pointed out this week that Heathrow has kind of got the the, the appeal has been accepted. So the the decision to cancel the or block the third runway Heathrow has been overturned as well. So a really dismal week for transport, frankly. So this report, um, fundamentally, let's skip the video, the stupid video. So. It's disappointing because I always hope for the best of the NIC. Theoretically, it's a good idea to have an NIC, but so far they've essentially uh, they've just done what Treasury has told them to. Uh, I started my writing, my professional writing career, by writing a piece debunking a nonsense output by the National Infrastructure Commission. They were talking about uh, diverting, you know, they they were writing in their report to divert freight from railways onto platooned road you know platooned hgvs on the road um not only is platooning a nonsense vaporware gadget ban essentially but it's uh you know it's hugely more environmentally and socially damaging uh and also just not as good at f for moving things around so uh yeah that wasn't a great start that was back in t the end of 2017 start of 2018 so uh yeah not a great start and i have to say since then i've not seen any positive out that they're slow to report and from this page that I've got up now, they just don't know what they're talking about, which is deeply, deeply frustrating. So I've I've brought out this little bit of the report, which is probably uh, typifies the um the kind of the problems with the whole thing. Which is uh, let me get my squishy squishy boot on out here. Let's get the red up because it needs to be red. Um, so this is this is about release capacity. So they're talking about releases, and they've they're this is their sensitivity. They're they're assuming they're assuming. Fine, everything's built on assumptions. I don't agree with people saying, oh, anyone, if anyone ever says, don't assume anything because it makes an ass out of you and, and me, 
which doesn't work because that's not the word assume. It's assuming. Tell them they're an idiot. Um, I had a former boss who said that, and I just blinked at him um, because it's nonsense. Everything we do is based on assumptions. But you have to do. You have to basically try to get those assumptions right. And in this case, they've assumed that uh, one new long distance space uh, is equal to one new space of commuting capacity, which is not true. It just isn't the case. Uh, even HS2 themselves, who have done incredibly little c conservative estimates of this, estimated it around about double that. So if the whole premise of a report looking at the value of high-speed segregation is based on uh, half the benefit to uh, building in new high-speed segregation to what the reality looks like, even in a most conservative estimate, the whole report is bunkum, which of course it is. Um, furthermore, I mean, there are loads of problems with the report. There, there are some good things in there. You know, they talk about rolling problems of electrification, little scatterings of good things. But given the response, given how everyone's reacted in the way they have to, to the way this report has been structured, uh, it really is exactly what government needed to be, which is anything they want to say whatever they want to say. It does not come out with a clear conclusion. It does not state, thanks to the lack of proper assessment, it does not state, uh, an, an understanding of the rail network, it does not state anything unequivocally, which means that you know, Treasury lent on it to basically say, oh, they also play, they actively in the report several times explicitly play different types of, of investment against each other, which is nonsense. That's just not how to proceed. Um, um, just, yeah, they're, 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 yeah, Owen O'Neill has pointed out there's a, a section, half a page where they hint that a through underground uh, connection through Manchester might be a good idea. Yeah. Um, there are, as I say, there are little, little bits and pieces that are good, but, but, the challenge, you know, little bits and pieces get lost if your overriding message is pitching different, you know, pitting different types of investment against each other. Um, and the other thing that's hugely disappointing that, that's worth highlighting in the National Infrastructure Commission, uh, this is the, uh, this is a picture. This, these are all the commissioners. Um, so, not great in terms of. Uh, well, let's let let's. The main issue with this is, uh, firstly, it's not great in terms of age. Uh, you know, I, I know that people who are senior are the ones who generally get onto commissions like this, but uh, frankly, that generally means senior people the, mean that they've got embedded prejudices. So that's not great. But what's even worse than that, frankly, is that all of these people are attached to London universities. They're based inside the M25. They've all worked on, you know, they've they've all worked primarily worked on London projects. You know, it, one or you know, I think fifty percent or more of them have worked on the Olympic Legacy project. These are all. This is a very London, this is a view from inside the M25 of what the UK needs, a view of what the regions need. It is um, just, yeah, just deeply frustrating, deeply, deeply frustrating. And, and it just leads me to the conclusion that the NIC is, is just a, a flawed institution that needs to be, uh... well, I think what it says is, I've always had my reservations about Armit, but it, what it says is that you need to stop having non-railway people deciding what railway stuff is a good idea. Um, I know Armit was with RailTrack, but um, I don't think that says a lot, to be honest. In any case, the NRC report is just dismal. Really, really bad. There's one person who's northern-ish, if you squint. Who is it? Is it Bridget Rosewell? Or is it someone else? Bridget Rosewell uh, is um, convinced that... Uh, takes the view that any sort of... Um, any sort of investment uh, is... You know, that any sort of investment doesn't result in any economic or, or social returns. That's, that's uh, published on that front. So... Uh, I always raise an eyebrow on that. In any case, today we are talking about this. We're talking about some rail incidents, and this is an image of one of them. 
And uh, I thought, well, I always put this picture up because it's it's, it's worth kind of paying attention to. Um, so it, yeah, it's, we're going to be talking about rail incidents that have changed the permanent way for good, um, and not all aspects of it. Just basically, what, so so I'll explain this after the intro credits. Actually, in any case, this is what we're going to be talking about tonight. And basically, we should get started really because it's already nearly quarter past. Um, while I've got this up, any any questions on on this? Because yeah, there's quite a few things coming through. Let's see. Uh, da, 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 da. Lots of any any questions. So the the NIC report wants HS two to be more London centric. Um, basically, they've they've they're suggesting that the whole underlying kind of premise of the report is they're saying is they're coming up with the idea that um, regional rail is worth investing in more than long distance links, which basically comes right back to that's that's essentially a HS two argument that I battle on Twitter all the time, and it comes from a deep misunderstanding of what HS2 is about. Essentially, this report has been created by people who don't understand either what HS2 is about or what uh, or how the railway functions. It's just it's just hugely disappointing. And, and I, there are some people who've said, oh, it's not that. Uh, it's not saying that. It's not saying that. I'm sorry if the conclusion that's been drawn by the, by the, the national press, by leading politicians of both parties, uh, and by business and lobby groups and industry lobby groups, uh, sorry, business leaders and industry lobby groups, if they've all come to the conclusion that it's it's basically canning the eastern leg and northern Paris rail, that's what the report is saying. Uh, reading between the lines isn't something that you should be doing with these reports. That it should be absolutely explicit. So it's a, it's a deep, deep failure. Am I going to do a full-length takedown video on this? Yeah, maybe in January. Uh, let's let's maybe have a look at it in January, shall we? We'll pick through each page. And, and, and we can say what's, what's good and we can say what's bad. Maybe that's the thing to do. In any case... Uh, Here's some 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 whatever this is. Hopefully you can see what it is. Uh, and basically, let's crack on. Let's crack on with the episode, shall we? Uh, welcome to tonight's. I'm, I'm promise it. Uh, well, actually, is it going to cheer up? I don't know. Maybe it isn't. Isn't going to cheer up. Actually, it's a pretty. It's a, it's a mildly bleak episode. In any case, um, we're going to talk about technical things and learning and, and how things have got better. So yes, it is going to be a positive episode. Um, and all it remains for me to do is, is is kick off. Welcome to tonight's show, everyone. The Intercity 225 there, fading away. I realize it's kind of having the chirpy eye of the engine music and then the words, four fatal derailments that change the permanent way for good. It's kind of, it's a little bit of a sharp contrast. In any case, um, here's some here's some track. Let's bring my little face in, shall we? It's me, I'm in the corner. Hello, everyone. Um, it is some sad rail. Yeah, you're right, Ella. This is a picture. I think that if, if, if David Shearers is with us, I think this is, um, uh, this is... This is a picture that he might have taken, or certainly one of his, his staff have taken in, in Rail Engineer. Uh, I've nicked it, I'm sorry. But it's very, very, very good. And there aren't very many nice high-resolution pictures of, of British track that, that are like this that, that aren't taken by, that I don't have myself. Uh, this is this is Inverurie to Aberdeen, and this is the double track section. Um, and it look, look at this, terrific. It's a terrific picture. On one side, you've got the running line uh, looking basically quite smooth. And on the other, you've got the recently laid G44s, fast clips, uh, what is that? Is that sent? I can't quite read the uh, the branding marks on there, but it, to me, it's it looks. Uh, it's got a it's got a vertical web, so it'll be um, send fifty six e one fifty six e one rail. So it's the old uh, one, the equivalent of the old one one three a. This will be relevant later, folks. 
write that down in your copybook. Uh, and basically, this what we see here is plain line track. And the reason I'm talking about plain line track, and the reason I'm putting a picture up to explain what plain line, plain line track is, is because these are these these incidents, the, these rail crashes that have changed the development of, of the permanent way. I'm focusing on ones that have occurred in plain line track. So switches and crossings, which is where which is not plain line track. It's the other type of track. It's where lots of tracks intersect each other. Um, those are more complicated, and there have been lots of incidents as a result of switch and crossing failures. The thing is with switch and crossings, because they're quite complicated, generally they're not they're not necessarily failures of the physical bits, uh, or indeed of the you know they're, they're generally failures of you know they're generally or the underlying engineering. They're generally failures of the um, generally failures of operations, failures of management, uh, failures of maintenance, but ultimately maintenance failures and management failures. It's very rare that there's a, a maintenance failure that can be uh, ascribed to the, the individual who should be doing the maintenance. Generally, they've been asking and being told not to do it. So um, we'll also get to that later. In any case, so I put this picture up to explain what plane line is. So there we are. Uh, the, the new track, people are saying, why is the new track wavy? The new track's wavy because it's been placed roughly in the correct location. And then a tamper will go through and apply the correct overall alignment uh, according to coordinates that we give them in a, in a nice land XML file out of my design software. They plug into WinALC and whiz through there on a tamper and make it all beautiful. Uh, in fact, there's another pass of ballast to go through over the top of that. So they've kind of put the track on top, uh, but it's it's very ballast light. So they'll they'll go through and pour, just basically drown it in ballast. Just the tops of the rails will poke up. And then they'll go through the tamp. They'll scoop a little bit. They might go around and shovel a little bit off the clips. But they'll go through and tamp the whole thing into the correct alignment. And it'll be beautiful. And in fact, they have done that. It'll be lovely. In any case, um, it's not too harsh a curve. It's only because it's a telephoto lens. Uh, so this picture, yes, also there's some nice... Uh, is it Ready Rock? Actually, I don't know if it is Ready Rock. But there's one of the very nice um, sort of uh, track kind of uh, track corridor widening solutions there to take the toe out of the former embankment position to widen the, the kind of the overall rail corridor um, which is, is like Lego blocks with a nice kind of rockish looking facing uh, but actually it's just concrete and then stuff piled up behind it it's quite nice there um, anyway there's plenty we could look at in this fantastic high resolution picture but uh, we're not going to do that we're going to move on to this picture here which is a picture of me no it's not a picture of me. It's a picture of that. I've, it's some of my sketches uh, talking about what I do with my day job. So my day job is it's all gone very dark. My day job is converting sort of uh, civil engineering materials. This is basically the role of the permanent way engineer, converting civil engineering materials, you know, steel, uh, concrete, uh, aggregates, and turning it into a you know having the precision of a mechanical device of a mechanic. You know, so basically, civil engineering and mechanical engineering combined. Um, you know, the 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 interface between the wheel and the rail, as I always say, is about five pence piece size of a thumbnail so um so that is that's my day job uh, and that's the job of all at permanent way engineers is to make that work without causing problems and today we're going to talk or this evening we're going to talk about the problems uh i it's worth me saying uh before we kick off that uh, a bit of a content warning actually if you're i'm going to be talking about in, in some kind of detail about some pretty horrific rail incidents I'm, you know it's not going to be it's not going to be gory, but it's the, the, the way that I describe this. I will go into some of the detail of what people on that train experienced. Um, and there are some, I've got some video as well of, 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 the, of the first incident, the, the, the oldest incident. It's worth, um, yeah, it's just worth, if, if you don't think, you, if you don't want to listen to that, or you've been involved in one of these incidents and you don't want to, and it's going to trigger some unpleasant memories, then, um, then maybe this isn't the episode for you. Uh, if not, uh, if, if, if you're okay with that, then we'll press on. 
Um, yes, we're starting with Hither Green. Uh, so this is the first instant we're looking at. Why is that faded in and out? That's weird, wasn't it? Uh, oh, that's because I've probably got animation on the text box the whole time. That's that's deeply annoying. You know what's great is that I can go in and just get rid of that for all these. Look, this, this is really good. So while I talk, I can go animations, get rid of animations. I don't want that to happen. I also don't want this to happen. Go away, get rid of that. And also this one, uh, get rid of that. And also this one here, get rid of that. And this one as well, and get rid of that. Boom. Uh, where, I wonder where I nicked this from that it did that. In any case, not relevant. Uh, Hither Green, we start with Hither Green, uh, and it's it's kind of quite late in the evening, 9.16pm 9, 9, 9, on Sunday the 5th of November 1967. Uh, and I'm essentially going to talk about exactly what happened. This is the plan. Um, so, what time is it? We've got... Uh, let me just go in here and make sure I've got the right bits. I've got all sorts going on screen-wise. Um, here we are. So, uh, the the kind of the... Let me just go through here. So, the the, the course of the derailment is, is the bit. I've got the... I'm going to be referring to the crash report throughout, by the way. So, it's worth me kind of uh, kind of going through and explaining these in, in, in detail, what's going on. So, uh, essentially, that... Let's let's have let's let's go through. In fact, you know what? I can tell you the tale of, of of what's going on here. So, so we've got the there's there's a there's a 1943 Hastings to Charing Cross uh, train uh, comprised of uh, kind of twelve coaches um, with two six coach diesel electric sets. Um, kind of uh, it was approaching Hither Green under clear signals. It was going at about seventy miles an hour. And what happened? The first the kind of the leading pair of wheels of the third coach um, struck. A small wedge, which I'll show you uh, in a, in a second, uh, a small wedged piece of steel that had broken away from the end of a of a rail, uh, and it derailed uh, across the down fast line, um, and the train essentially derailed and split up, and um, it kind of kind of ran on. It was going around a curve, but it ran on for about a quarter of a mile. But then it hit, as often happens, it hit some uh, a crossover. It hit some switches and crossings, uh, which led to the train to completely derail and sort of jackknife, and that's the point at which it all destabilized and unfortunately made it a big mess um yeah lots of couplings breaking which meant the train sort of split apart all over the place um and and the train was pretty busy so there were passengers standing in the corridors um of the corridor coaches it was a very busy train and so 49 uh, passengers actually i think yeah it was 49 passengers who were killed and then another uh, 78 were injured um so you know these coaches were overturned uh, very quickly there was a response but the you know it was 1967 and so the, the the emergency services response, whilst whilst kind of hefty, was not. And the, these coaches are not; they don't have the crash worthiness of modern coaches either. So that's the reason for the significant fatalities of that huge disaster. You know, from, from a rail perspective, that's that's an enormous number of people to be killed in a in a rail crash. Let's whiz over to the tiles. So uh, I've got this very quiet, but this is a, this is a video that give you an idea of what the carnage looked like after it happened. So. You know, trains derailing at speeds speeds of over fifty miles an hour generally make a lot of mess. And see twisted steel. Um, yeah, this is them. This is them recovering the train. The, the, the kind of the day after, you can see whole body kind of body panels just ripped away. Um, not good. Um, yeah, it's a right. So, so you can see they're pouring in. Uh, yeah, we can we can see. Uh, the, the, another thing that happens often in, in rail crashes, if you're not familiar, is, is quite often the bogies will will come become detached. The bogies are the 
big lumps of metal, often up to five tons in weight, with the with the wheels attached. Those are very very heavy, and um, and they become projectiles when a train derails, and those often then collide with coaches. Either trains come in the other direction, or or they get hit by the following. You know, the coaches following. It's not a lot. You can see the state of the you know, the emergency service response is um, it's slightly different to what you see in the in, in kind of modern rail disasters, with the public are just in amongst it, kind of almost getting involved themselves and trying to help. Quite something. Uh, yeah. You can see. Yeah, not 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 a good thing to happen. And and really, this is the worst. This is the worst of the in terms of the the number of people injured and, and killed. This is the worst of the disasters that we're going to cover today, uh, this evening. Um, I just put this this old video, uh, old newsreel in just to give it kind of give an idea of. I think you can seeing the video get an idea of the scale of damage that happens when rail when trains fall off. Um. Yeah, not good. No, here it is, it's daylight, and you can still see, you can sort of see the, yeah, you can see the mess of everything, just, yeah, also a few, some, yeah, some interesting, interesting footage of them moving things around, but, uh, yeah, not good. In any case, um, let's whiz, switch into the pictures, yeah, I've got the pictures of, of Hither Green there. So, um, it was a pretty cold, damp day, uh, what had happened, what had actually happened, what had caused this incident? Well, what I'm going to do is show you a picture. I'm going to put this up. This is an extract from the report, so you can all see this, hopefully. Um, and this here is a bolted joint. You have one rail coming up to here. Let me get my pen out. Oh, I can't get my pen out. Uh, get one, you've got one rail coming up to, uh, up to the end. Actually, I totally can if I do. Uh, let me just do draw. There we go. So you've got one rail coming up to here. And you can see kind of there's the there's the rail foot you know the rail disappearing off in that direction. Uh, you've got another rail coming in this direction, uh, doing that, uh, going off that direction. And you've got here you've got four bolt holes. And onto this slot a kind of a piece of kit that looks like this. It's called the fish plate. There's an old joke that uh, when you're a permanent way engineer you need to know your fish plates from your dinner plates. Uh, and it kind of looks a bit like this, except that the holes are actually a bit more spaced out in the in the real one. Uh, and you can sort of see, you can see here's, here's one piece here, and here's the other piece here, and it's broken in two. Now, actually, the fish plate breaking in two is a second is a side effect of something far more important that's happened. You can see something else that's going on here, in that there's a hole here, and in fact, this is just the top of a crack. And this crack, if I let me get let me get a different color out, shall I? Let me get the yellow out. This crack here uh, is, this crack runs right down into here, and there's another crack that goes out there, there's another bit of the crack that goes down there, and there's another bit that disappears off like this. And this crack, if I was down here, you can see a picture of it. Uh, this is what the report looks like, by the way, it's a very detailed report. But it's important that I show you what the, the picture of the crack looks like, because it explains quite a lot. Uh, do, 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 do. There we are. Here's another picture of the detached portion. You can see this this wedge piece has essentially broken away. So this horrible looking wedge piece, uh, there we are, I'm going to do it in red now. This piece broke apart, it rotated round, and with the wheel kind of, the, the, the wheel of the rail, uh, of the train kind of coming in this direction, essentially the wheel, the train ramped up and was derailed by this, this essentially what had become a ramp in the top of the railhead. Now, how had that happened? You know, how, how on earth had that 
situation been allowed to occur, you might say. Well, let's talk about fatigue, shall we? So if I get a piece of uh, metal and I bend that metal, this is, this is my paperclip situation. I keep not having a paperclip at uh, easy access. It's a, it's a right old model. If I get a paperclip and bend that paperclip repeatedly, um, there's a draw button. Yeah, it's it's in, uh, yeah, thanks, thanks, Eli, I found it. Um, if you get a paperclip and bend it over and over again, eventually it snaps. And you can see at the position of the of the snap, you can see that it gets it's, it gets the metal changes color. You can see the properties change. That's that's fatigue. That's fatigue failure. Repeated loadings to failure is 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 called is is fatigue. Um, and in this situation, essentially these these holes are a point of repeated loading and unloading, stressing and unstressing as the wheels pass over these joints. And it's the same for every single bolted joint across the country. And bear in mind, there were hundreds of thousands, if not millions of these joints on the network. There are about 50 joints per mile on the railway. Is that right? 50, might be 50 per kilometer. A lot, a lot of rail joints. Uh, and at this point, very little long-welded rail existed on the network. This is, you know, this is the late 60s. The majority of track was jointed track. Um, and so you have these joints and across the country, they're supposed to be taken apart, uh, greased and put back together again at a minimum annually, if not more frequently. And that greasing was supposed to keep maintain it as a dynamic system. The trouble is in this situation, uh, even with that greasing, there is some limited. Well, I tell you what, let's let's read the conclusion, shall we? Let's read exactly what it says um, in the conclusion of the report, because it, explain, it explains it nice and clearly. Um, so there are, so this, so this report basically kicked off a few things. Um, one of the issues was, uh, there we are, um, the trouble is this report is broken into several major, several big bits, which is why I'm, uh, making sure I'm finding the right one before I read out. So there we go. So, um, so they start basically after this report, they they started, they undertook to start a load of different tests. Uh, and Sort of. So if I, we don't want tack hole. It's a. Oh yeah, we'll get to that. So this is this. Is, yeah. So we'll we'll get there in a second. So uh, Hither Green, they basically basically kicked off a load of tests, a load of of different sort of tests into a few different things. And actually, so there were there were essentially um, four different strains of research after this uh, incident. And in fact, there were other discussions as well about whether axle loads were causing a problem because there'd been changes in the types of loading. They'd moved from uh, rolling stock being hauled by a locomotive to these sort of suburban units on this track, and there were consideration as to whether that, you know, the, the reduction in wheel sizes, all these different discussions were increasing loading. And actually found that was not a major um, contributing factor to this to this incident. In terms of permanent way, there are four different strains of research. The first, um, the first was about uh, the strength of rail ends, understanding how strong the ends of rails were. Um, uh, the second thing, which actually happened pretty quickly, was the development of a new rail profile. So in, in 1967, the standard rail profile um, for British railways was uh, 110A, it's a BS110A flat bottom rail, uh, which is essentially 110 pounds per yard of rail. So that's uh, the equivalent of like 50, 52 kilograms, something like that, 50, 52 kilograms per meter ish. Um, someone else will correct me on that. In any case, those uh, that the uh, so the the that what that was so the the, the 110A they thickened the web to try and reduce some of the bolt hole stresses. This was an attempt. Uh, uh, we'll get to how successful it was shortly. Um, so then we got so we moved from 110A to 113A, 
um, as the new rail section, which is the rail section that we have today, in fact. Uh, so it involved the thickening of the, of the rail web to reduce bolt hole stresses. The next, uh, the next bit of kind of strain of research was into ultrasonic testing, uh, methods for ultrasonic testing, which is where you, uh, let's, let's see, where you if, you, if you can imagine you've got the rail, there's the, there's the rail here. I'm looking at the rail in sort of, um, in sort of side view. Uh, if you get a kind of a bubble of water with a, with a sort of a sensor in the middle uh, and you ping sound waves through the rail, uh, it then bounces, and kind of obviously the, the, the wheel is moving in this direction, it then bounces back and gets picked up by the sensor if it's moved on a bit. Look at this drawing, it's beautiful. Picked up by the sensor. Um, and if you've got notice, if you've got something like a discontinuity, like a, a crack or some, some sort of discontinuity, it'll bounce, the, the sound waves will bounce back quicker and you'll get, a tr the trace will change and you know there's an issue. And so research into this method of testing uh, rails really kind of kicked off in a big way. Um, kind of, they'd already been using ultrasonic testing, but, but the improvements to testing the rail in situ um, improved, uh, was accelerated kind of dramatically. There was actually a, a new test vehicle was commissioned pretty soon after this incident. So that was a, a major step forwards. And there was another bit of work, which was to increase the fracture toughness of rail steel. So um, up to that point, rail was quite soft, I think it's it's fair to say if Dan P was on the call, he'd be able to tell us exactly what's going on. Um, it's it's basically sonar, uh, sort of, yeah. In any case, uh, the oh wait, what's going on in the chat? Oh, we've got Gary Kino with us, by the way. That's good, Gary, because you're going to get a mention later. Um, oh, what's there's, uh, there's all discussions are already going on. Oh, there's some discussions of the comet crash, and that's also relevant. We'll get there too. Um, so the the, the fourth thing was was uh, working. British Railways started working with British Steel to come up with a, an improved uh, fracture toughness in their in their the, the rail steel and actually they were looking at the crystal structure at the surface of the rail so when you treat when you, when you create rails uh, steel isn't always this it's not always the same homogeneity you have depending on how you treat the steel it forms different types of crystal structures some of those are stronger than others so depending on how you wash you know water wash or temperature wash the the steel you can get a different crystal structure and one of those crystal structures is the crystal structure that forms the major well all Almost all, certainly the majority of standard rail steel is is from this new this this crystal structure called perlite. Um, at the time, there was wasn't very much perlite rail steel at all. It was used in, in fact, I don't know if it was used anywhere in rails at that point. But certainly the um, it was found that these perlitic steels were found to give the most favourable results um, in terms of both ductility and fracture resistance. But uh, it did come with a reduction in strength and durability compared to the slightly softer rail steel. Um, and also the other thing that you found was that you couldn't, you can't weld this perlitic steel to manganese crossings. So you need an intermediate kind of little uh, section of, of, of a, a kind of what, what's, I don't know what the, I'm not a welding expert, which we'll also come to later in this episode. There's a lot that I'm going to come to later in this episode. Um, a kind of a thin, shiny strip that if ever you're in a platform and maybe you're next to some S&C, you might see that thin, shiny strip uh, off the front of the, the crossing uh, kind of the crossing nose, either kind of the the leg ends at the back or the or the nose, the kind of the, the V fronts. Um, you'll see where there's weld the, the the crossings welded into the overall layout. You'll might see a shiny little strip of of steel, which is the connection between the paralytic uh, standard rails and the um, and the the crossing nose. And that also can be because of the different steel makeup of the crossing itself. But that's that's another discussion. In any case, there were those four streams of research kicked off by Heather Green. It was a dramatic incident, and it really, it, it, it sort of uh, bluntly brought to bear how much safety 
of the of the track infrastructure was not well enough understood and this kind of came about at the point where research you know, the research and i kind of written a bit of a paper on this that at some point i need to turn into an article um this research ramped up the research into actually the, the actual functioning of the track itself uh the permanent way that, that that infrastructure really ramped up at this point and it came about also at the time when um british rail research was becoming a thing um 67 uh so there were some restructurings um in the kind of the late 60s but actually by this point British Royal Research was starting to become a, a thing uh, in, in a really big way. You know, people were starting to know about the advanced passenger train by that point. So so people knew about the, the BR Research. And so it was BR Research who really picked up and ran with these these four different work streams. So that was Hither Green. And we'll come back to Hither Green uh, later on because the story didn't end with that research. Um, we have to go to another another crash. We're going to jump forwards to 1971. Um, it's 6 p.m. Uh, Friday the 2nd of Ju July uh, 1971, and we're at Tattenhall Junction, which is, where is it? It's somewhere in the London Mid Midland region. It's like, uh, is it in Cheshire? It's in my head. It's around. It's in Cheshire area. Um, and what's happening at Tattenhall Junction? Well, let me paint the picture for you. So at, um, yeah, so the, on the, yeah, it's at the, the line between Chester and Crewe, and um, the train involved was a it was a school's party special consisting of ten coaches hauled by a diesel loco. Um, it was heading from Smethwick um, early that morning, so Smethwick Rolf Street, I presume, in the middle of uh, Brum, uh, and it was taking them over to Rill for a day's outing. And um, so it left Rill um, at uh, so it was returning them all, having had their nice day on uh, from at seventeen twenty five. It left Rill. And it was approaching Tattenhall Junction under clear signals at um, 70 miles an hour. What happened at 70 miles an hour? Well, right next to this bridge, um, this happened. A buckle formed underneath the train. Uh, and unfortunately, the uh, it's rather tragically, uh, two children were killed in the accident. Uh, and, other, and several adults and children were severely injured in the accident as well. Really nasty crash. And this accident, this picture, in fact, is a really... So there, there are a lot of things going wrong in this picture. A lot of things going wrong. And certainly for me, with my modern rail, modern track hat on, there are some things that I would be looking at immediately if I saw a buckle like this. Uh, things that I would... That, that, that really are a, a kind of a massive red flag red flag for, for problems that, um, that, 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 let's say, in hot weather... Are an issue. So we've talked. So lots of you will know about buckles, track buckles happening in hot weather. But a lot of people, if you if you pay attention to the the news and and to, to quite a lot of even railway commentators, you you kind of you get the feeling that that track buckles are only a problem where you've got welded long welded track, long welded rails. This is not the case. Welded track is far better at resisting buckles than bolted track is because, for example, you see down here. Okay, it's not a particularly good resolution photo, but I see a very shiny connection between these uh, two rail ends. There should be a line here, really. Likewise, on this one, there should be a line here. And this is quite close to the lens, and I'm not seeing any line. I'm just seeing a, a kind of a continuous... Let me just get rid of this again. I'm just seeing a continuous... If you look at this section here, there's no line at all. It's just continuous shiny strip. And actually, 
all of the joints were like this along here. All of them were what's called rail creep is where rails kind of shift slightly towards either downhill or in the direction of predominant braking. You know, there's constant longitudinal forces through the rail. And certainly in older track types like this, we've got what is this BR1 base plates with rail springs. These are these are kind of um, hook springs that are part of, and this is this is a BR1 base plate here. Um, not a huge amount of tow load, which means the rails kind of over time shuffle. And what that means is where you should have. So I showed you a picture of a of a bolted joint earlier. Let me just get um, get my. Uh, so this is what a, a, a bolted joint should look like. You should have the rails here. There's a rail there and another rail there. Uh, there we are. Very nice. You'll have the bolt holes. There are the bolt holes. There we are. Bolt holes. And then you have the fish plate, which will fit in here like this. And then you've got the you have the rail foot uh, there, and then the rail head there as well, just to fill in the picture there but this thing is very important this gap this is this is a this is a gap which i'm going to draw on here and people are going to shout at me for not having a whackum this gap is an expansion gap and essentially when it's cold weather it'll be at its largest so you have a nice big gap and when it's hot weather uh it'll be really really small you have a really small gap and in extreme conditions you will um you might find that the, the, the gap closes up entirely and as, and if if all the gaps are closed, um, it's not. It doesn't mean you have to close the railway, but it means that at that point you need to start paying a lot more at, at closer attention to the condition of the track. So that is one factor here that was a major issue that contributed to this buckle forming under hot weather. Uh, and in fact, I'm going to read. Uh, I'm going to read the course of the incident. Let me just read. So I'm going to read this so that you have an idea of exactly what happened. So. In fact, I'm going to read this, not quite verbatim, but broadly verbatim from the report. So the train was appro approaching Tattenhall Junction on the upline under clear signals at a speed of about 68 miles an hour when the jointed track in the immediate vicinity of the Brick Arch overbridge, this is uh, overbridge number 50 here, started to deform under the train. The effect of the deformation was to throw the coaches towards the left. Uh, there we are, you can see, so that the coaches started swinging, uh, let me get my red pen out, leftwards, they started swinging this way. Um, and this sideways deflection became increasingly marked from about the fifth coach towards the rear of the train until the eighth, ninth and tenth coaches struck the arch of the bridge. So, and actually, you can't quite see it here, but there's actually some debris uh, hanging from the, uh, actually hanging off, off the bridge because it, the, and all this was basically scraped, smashed off the train by the fact that the, essentially the coach, the, the roof of the coach, that was dismal, um, the roof of the coach basically had been um, struck like this. So, so essentially, this part of the of the, the roof of the coach had been smashed off by the time you got to the eighth and ninth uh, and tenth coaches. Um, at about this stage, the trailing pair of wheels on the trailing bogey of the eighth coach and most of the wheels on the the ninth became derailed. Um, so, independently, these the 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 curvature was too much. The wheels became derailed. Um, and this, together with the impact on the bridge, led to division between the ninth and 10th coaches. The 10th coach overturned onto the adjacent down line, so it kind of went this way, um, and uh, came to rest 200 yards past the bridge, so kind of in, in the direction of where the photo was taken. The remainder of the train continued forwards, uh, with the 8th and 9th coaches derailed. Uh, the division caused the train brakes to be applied, and at about the same time, the, the driver, who'd kind of been warned by hand signals from the, hand, the, signal, uh, the signaler in Tattenhall Junction, um, made an emergency brake application and then stopped about 440 yards beyond uh, the position that the 10th coach had, had kind of fallen over. Uh, the 8th coach had actually re-railed itself um, at the, through the junction, but the 9th coach was entirely derailed. 
Uh, and so in terms of damage, this is the kind of where it gets pretty grim. So there was minor damage on everything up to the, you know, the eighth coach was pretty extensively damaged from the center to the rear, especially on the left-hand side because of its striking the bridge. Uh, the ninth coach was even more extensively damaged. Uh, you know, uh, damage was kind of right across the, the, the length of the roof, really. Um, the last 10 feet of the ninth coach, the roof had been entirely ripped off, uh, together with most of the side paneling uh, to the vestibule and toilet compartment. Um, and the 10th coach, uh, both bogies had become detached, extensively damaged. The coachwork was severely damaged, you know, kind of smashed to bits almost. Uh, the luggage compartment to the rear was completely torn away. The roof and side paneling was still you know, here. This is it. This is the roof and side paneling of, of, co of the 10th coach. Um, and the left-hand side of the coach was pushed in for, for most of its length. So a lot of severe damage. Not very nice. Um, so uh, where are we? So this is the this this is really the I'm getting distracted by the chat. Actually, I'm going to pay less attention to the chat while I'm describing, and then I'll come back to it after each incident. So uh, so you can basically a real mess, a real mess. So I've talked about the fact that the joints were closed up. There are other issues here. The next one is what can I see? in here? Can anyone see this? I can see it. every time I draw on it, you can't see it, but. Uh, there, I'm seeing the sides of sleepers here. These are timber sleepers. Um, also, the the ballast here is the profile of the ballast here is completely flat, completely flat. So I've already talked about what um, I've already talked about expansion joints. So we had um, expansion joints. The next thing we need to talk about is ballast profiles, and particularly ballast shoulders. So when you've got the track, I'm going to draw it again here. You've got the track. Here's a sleeper, and you've got the rails are sort of sat on top. Uh, obviously a bit further apart than that in fact you know what let's let's fix that by doing this there's my very chunky base plates and there's my rail um kind of looks like a smiley face either side of the uh, of the sleeper you will expect to see what's called a ballast shoulder so you don't have the ballast as a as a sort of a flat line on in almost all situations you know 99 percent of situations essentially certainly in, in in kind of running lines in all situations you should expect to see a nice ballast shoulder well-defined Nice heaped ballast uh, with, a, with a height of up to about, uh, you know, between two and 300 millimetres. So it's so quite a substantial height and then a width of about 450 millimetres. So that's the sort, of the, the sort of dimensions you're looking at. Now, the reason that you have this heaped ballast, more than anything else, is to hold the track in place. It's to actually sit and hold and kind of it basically acts as extra weight either side of the sleepers. And particularly on jointed track, which is prime, which is more often than not wooden sleepers, so much lighter track construction that track system is quite light. So even independent of any longitudinal forces, you know, any risk of buckling, the track geometry will go off if you are not, um, you know, over time you've installed the track geometry, particularly through curves. Uh, if you've got trains passing through there, eventually you're going to lose the track geometry. So the ballast is there, to, that, that, those ballast shoulders are there to hold the track in place, essentially. Um, also, you want to make sure, you know, if, if so that's the side view. If you're looking kind of in the top-down view where we're looking at uh, sleepers kind of here, there's sleepers uh, and sleepers, uh, my absolutely stunning drawing. Uh, these bits in between, these are called, uh, they're called the beds, is, is one way of us describing them. Uh, and these should also all be full, full of ballast. Ballast, 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 ballast. And that ballast should be up to the level of the top of the sleeper. So what I see here with all the 
uh, all of these uh, sort of exposed sides of, of sleepers shows that there's not enough ballast in the oh the other, so that they can be called cribs as well. There's not enough ballast in the in the cribs in the in the gaps between the sleepers, and there are no ballast shoulders. So there is almost no resistance against lateral deformation of the of the track. Should the joints get blocked up and uh, and the longitudinal forces start being transferred, you know, large longitudinal forces start being transferred to the track. So already you've got a lot of bad things happening here. Now, why did the track buckle at this location? Why did it location uh, buckle adjacent to the bridge, which is clearly a, you know, a situation. If the bridge hadn't been there, the buckle might not have been as catastrophic. The train might have stayed online. The emergency brake, you know, the, the driver would have braked as a result of the, the signaler who, who kind of saw all the dust from the incident and kind of raised their hand. Why did it do that? Well, it's because if you can imagine the, you've got the, let's go white again. Uh, it's like I'm drawing on a chalkboard. Um, but Wacker would make this easier, wouldn't it? If you've got the track here, there's the track, uh, there's the track, lovely. And you've got the, the arch of the bridge here. And you've got your, your ballast here, there's your ballast. The bridge doesn't stop; it continues, and in fact, you might well have some kind of, uh, depending on what the construction type is uh, here of the of the the kind of the, the overbridge. You've got uh, a foundation that goes underneath, down underneath the track level, and that foundation means that for the distance, you know, for some distance either side of the of, of this, uh, you know, either side of the approach to this bridge, you've got a a weak point, or not necessarily a weak point, but a change, uh, some change, which means that. Generally, when you've got stress buildups, and this actually comes back to Hither Green and what we're going to talk about later on, stress buildups generally have concentrations generally happen at, a, at some discontinuity, and in this situation, the discontinuity of stress buildup for the for the track, the longitudinal forces in the in the track, uh, were impacted by the presence of the bridge. So that that's why the the deformation happened under the bridge and why the incident was was so bad. And actually, after this incident, um, and indeed the previous incident, so Hither Green as well. Hither Green, perhaps the biggest uh, consequence that resulted from Hither Green was the massively accelerated rollout of welded track, of long welded track. And this incident really hammered that point home, that maintaining, as, as labour was becoming more sparse, uh, as it was becoming harder to keep, you know, as there were, you know, efficiency savings being made across the, the rail, uh, kind of the, the rail network, it, it was becoming absolutely critical that long welded rail was rolled out across, uh, across the industry across the network and so both hither green and uh and tatton hall really accelerated that process which was a which was for the better so lots of discussions here um michael c is it because the area under the bridge was in the shade to expand it at a different rate uh no i don't think so because it's not i mean potentially that could have been a, a, a confounding factor but the the sun would have moved around so much that it, and the the stresses are transferred from quite a distance uh so i doubt that that shorter bridge would have had that much of an impact uh locally um uh let's see do, 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 do. uh right yeah any questions anyone for either hither green or tatton hall those those two kind of come in a bit of a a pair so uh let's see uh let's see oh yeah lots of discussion here so da, 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 da. welcome to everyone who's uh with us for this uh this evening's episode uh, Graham Harith, oh yeah, leveling up agenda indeed. Um, John Christoph uh, is, uh, what's the humidity like out? Oh, I see you're discussing, um, yeah, temperatures. Um, things can get pretty hot in the in the UK because basically it doesn't matter where it, it, it's all about relative temperature. So 
Um, because the UK, we're, we're lucky we don't have a huge temperature range. Other countries have a much larger temperature range. You know, Canada is a good example where you have you know, continental temperatures of, of extremes of high and low. And in, in some cases, in a lot of cases, it means restressing twice a year. In the UK, we don't need to do that because we, and generally in Northern Europe, we don't need to do that because we have a narrower temperature range or a narrower distance between uh, low temperatures and high temperatures. Climate change is impacting on this, I'll point out, in that we're getting more extremes of high temperature and this is pressuring our rail infrastructure more than it has been in the past. We're also getting extremes of cold, which is pushing it in the other direction and increasing the risk of rail breaks, which is another problem if you're using axle counters everywhere because you can't pick them up. In any case, the challenge of um, uh, in Britain, we've, we've, we don't need to re-stress twice a year. We, we stress once. We have a stress-free temperature of 27 degrees, which is um, up to 27 degrees. We have, um, I need to explain stressing. Basically, when you're laying long-welded track, you... Um, you don't just lay it in the ground and walk away. You actually cut a section out of it. You pull those rails. To... That's easier if I go big face, right? You cut. So you, you lay the, the rails. You cut a gap in the rails and you pull them together. And then you sort of weld, weld them together. Um, and, the, and that stress that you introduce into the rail is such that if the temperature increases, that stress reduces to zero at 27 degrees. We call that the stress-free temperature. So up to 27 degrees, you've got zero, um, you, you've got tensile stresses in the, let's, let's get a bit of paper. Paper always, always helps with this. Uh, where's a nice, oh yeah, here we go. Some some Waterstones receipts. So here's a nice Waterstones receipt, lovely. If I, uh, what's on this one? Uh, oh, it's from Oban, some nice pictures, uh, nice railway books. Anyway, if I pull this, pull this, we're going to have an example. If I pull this bit of, this thin little spindly bit of paper, you see it holds its shape quite nicely, nice and straight. If I apply even the slightest little bit of compressive stress, it immediately buckles, right? Rails are pretty much the same in terms of dimension. They're very, very long and thin, you know, kilometers long once they're all stitched together, kilometers and kilometers. Um, if you apply a compressive stress to that, it will buckle. Um, and that's why, so, so up to 27 degrees, that covers most temperature. So when you're getting hotter than 27 degrees, um, up to around about 60 degrees on the best track, so that the picture I showed earlier in Vruri, up to 59 degrees, that track will be absolutely fine. We have a, the critical rail temperatures is, 60, is 59 degrees, about 60 degrees Celsius. Um, that's the point at which you need to consider action, whether it's putting a speed on or, or having a watch person out to look at the, the track. For crap track like this stuff, the, crit, the critical rail temperature, so the, the temperature at which likelihood of a buckle is you know, enough that you need to take action, uh, is about the same as the stress-free temperature. So we have a nice form, critical real temperature management, which this is what, which was, which this sort of initiated, this critical real temperature management. Uh, we've had lots of um, incidents more recently that weren't fatal with freight that, that really hammered this process home. But the understanding of critical real temperature management and and, um, and, and and managing rail stresses as a result of hot, uh, kind of um, extremes of temperature, Tattenhall kicked this off in a big, in a kind of a large way. Um, and what we have nowadays is you have a critical real temperature management form you, you fill in what type of track materials they are, you put in the temperatures that the track was stressed at, and it gives you a temperature which you need to do things. So it gives you a CRT uh, val uh, temperature, then it gives you a CRT 5, which is where you have to put a speed, 5 mile an hour speed on, and then it gives you a CRT you know, watch person's temperature, and then a close the track temperature. All good stuff. We've improved those processes much more recently. In any case, Tattenhall kicked off a lot of that. Um, what's going on here with the chat? Anyway, uh, Yes, so, uh, oh, cheerio, Ella, that was a uh, short and sweet. Oh, crikey, it's 1955. Oh, good grief, we've got more incidents to talk about. 
Let's go to Alaskalf. This one is not going to take long because uh, there's a bit of a bait and switch. I am not going to talk much about Alaskalf because it's all about welding. And I don't really know much about welding. Also, there are no pictures of Alaskalf that I can find, uh, the instant that is. Um, but what I can tell you about is uh, if I get this up and then go to here and do open with this, um, is I can zoom into here and we can talk very briefly about Alaskalf. So on the... Uh, it's 2 p.m., Tuesday the 8th of December 1981, and uh, we had... Let's go through here. Nice. This, this is what crash reports come from. Uh, all of the, the reason I mentioned Gary earlier is because all of these are available on the, the, the Railways Archive, which um, gets a, it gets its own slide plug uh, later on, so uh, stay tuned for that. In any case, um, this is, these, these are what most of the reports look like, uh, and a lot of incidents happened in the kind of the... Basically, in the, in the post-war and uh, pre-privatization years, pretty much all... Uh, real crash reports look like this you've got a nice blue cover and then you've got um whoever was the her majesty's railway inspector at the time and then they kind of open they, they've got the, the honor to report and then they describe the they describe the incident so you, they describe here you've got the site the signaling the track here being described so you know it's being described as continuous welded rail in mrc fastening oh dear mrc fastening is what a mess and base plates see 113 pound rail 113 a pound rail um f27 sleepers all good stuff um, oh, cargo fleet 66 rail as well so it's shambolic condition rail I'd imagine good grief I would be very unhappy I've seen that stuff out and about and whenever I do see it it's generally a rip this out replace it please um, so this is talking about the bridge and talking about the connection and so in this situation the locomotive passed over a, a broken rail what had happened was that a um, a weld had broken uh, and that resulted in a broken rail which in turn derailed the train uh, and there was a fatality as a result of this incident, and we and it did go on to inform welding practice. Oh, let's let's zoom out a bit on this because we can talk about what happened. There's the there's the picture. So it's between York and um, it's just north of Church Fenton. Um, there there's the the line from York down towards Leeds. So I, a bit of track that I pass over quite a lot. You can see that this incident it was a pretty high speed incident. This is the equivalent of a TP service nowadays, um, and you can see that these. Two of the coaches, where the, fatal um, the fatality occurred in here and the injuries in here, two of the coaches overturned down quite a steep embankment. Um, the others uh, kind of continued pretty much all right. Emergency brakes were applied when the when the um, the tube, the kind of the brake pipe was broken. But the, the the derailment of the or the overturning of these two coaches down the embankment is what resulted in the fatality. And this is where there was this um, the the rail was broken at this weld just off the bridge. There are a lot of factors at play here, actually. Partly with the bridge, the 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 weld being near to close, located close to a bridge, was a bad thing. So that's you know informed our standards that and, and that changed. Uh, I'll come to that later. Um, but there's a lot to talk about Alaskalf that is particularly on welding. That's essentially outside of my expertise. And we're going to get someone in to talk about welding. Um, oh. Thanks for shouting at me, everyone. This is why having a guest is good. Real now, no, not real now. Side by side, you want a small face. There we are. This, the, this is the thing showing. There. This is what reports look like. Uh, thanks, thanks everyone for shouting at me. Thanks. This is this is the this is the important thing. Um, this is what the report looks like. Here we are, and I just basically came to the end where I showed the map of the or the the layout plan showing what had happened. There you are the derailment. Uh, there we go. Oh, thanks everyone for keeping me right. As ever, professional. This is why having the chat in the corner is good. I know, right? It's, it's good. Um, I have got rid of... This is at, lots of atting. Yeah, I need to pay more attention over to my chat. It's, uh, I never said this was a professional outfit, right? Someone call him on his mobile. Thanks, Gary. 
Well, as to, you know, for the people, the people who are doing this in audio only mode don't care. They're 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 hearing exactly what they're hearing anyway. Um. Anyway, that's Alice Gelf. I'm gonna swiftly move on from Alice Gelf because we need to talk about. Uh, oh yeah, this is basically to say Alice Gelf. We're gonna talk about the next incident, which is uh, near Elgin, Flan Bride. Uh, yes, this is a Brythonic name that is the same as Flan Bride in Wales. The Brythonic language got all over the place in in Britain. In any case, uh, three twenty-five p.m. Uh, on Thursday the 3rd of February 1983 and so it's kind of a it's probably quite a nippy uh, afternoon 1983 um, and well what's happened well this has happened again so we've got uh, yes I'm sharing now so everyone's on there um, we have got so this here this one here that I'm about to draw on is the hither green this is hither green here this is hither green and in fact, the changes that they'd made, that, that British Rail had made to the, the thickness of the rail web, so the thickness of the rail web here, this is kind of, if you can imagine the, the rail kind of doing this, and then it kind of has this shape, and then it has, and then it kind of comes out, and there's the rail foot like this. Uh, this bit is the web, this bit, the, the vertical bit. It's just like an I-beam. People were doing some chatting about I-beams in the chat. Um, so you have a, there's, there's the head, there's the foot, and this is the web. This bit here is the web. There we are. I'm sharing now so everyone can see it. There we are. Um, that's my, like, isometric view. It's really good. Everyone can see exactly what that is rather than just an incoherent scribble. In any case, these star-cracking failures had been continued to happen. It, the problem was certainly not solved. Um, several further accidents result. In fact, lots of accidents result, uh, kind of were happening as a result of these um, uh, these bolt hole failures. Um, and... And in fact, it was another fatal derailment, this 1983 fatal derailment in Elgin, uh, Lambride, that, that kind of essentially forced the British Rail Research Department to, to seek a lasting solution. Um, yeah, so, the, the, I mean, through, yeah, from 79, there were sort of uh, these sort of rail end failures. There were about 200 a year happening, 200 a year. Uh, not all of those result in derailments. There are about, you know, about maybe one or two derailments a year resulting from them. But there, you know, that's that's a significant failure that is was not decreasing. There was there was no rate of de decrease. It was continuing around about two hundred throughout. Um, interestingly, the research that we looked at as British Rail research came from America. Actually, it was uh, the, the, the research was being done in Utah. So uh, this is Elgin, but this is the Elgin derailment, by the way. Uh, in this situation, it was it was actually Bullhead Rail that had uh, had failed. So um, yeah, BS ninety five R. But it, you can, again, you can see actually in this situation it was a combination of factors because you had um, uh, you had a situation. Actually, this is sorry, this is Elgin. This is another one here entirely. This is uh, this is the Elgin one. You can see it's another classic star diagonal kind of uh, star cracking uh, failure that's actually ended up with a piece of the railhead disappearing off, uh, and that, that derailed the train. This is another one you can see here where you've got. Um, You've got a failure resulting from uh, multiple holes being drilled in the rail, which is just never do that. Don't drill holes in rails. Uh, certainly don't flame cut holes in rails. Uh, just don't do it. Don't do it. Um, and you can see all of these absolutely standard. These these star cracks are just they're just very recognisable failure. Star star star. The Americans brought us the solution. Strangely, in a roundabout way, um, it went from Britain. The research that resulted in the solution went from Britain uh, over to America and then came back again in the mid 80s. So, so 1985, the, the research had been completed in Utah that kind of incorporated a load of research, a huge body of research into metal fatigue management. Um, it came from the aeronautical industry um, because the aeronautical, in aeronautical industry had been dealing with fatigue for a very long time. In fact, 
it was fatigue that had ended Britain's chances of being at the head of the charge in the development of the airliner. Uh, this thing. No, not this thing. That's a picture of, El of the derailment at Elgin. You can see what... Uh, it's not gone well here, has it? Uh, failure in the joint. Trains falling. And actually, this one's probably fresh in the mind of my, some of my PWI colleagues. My The chair of the York section was um, manager of this bit of railway when it happened. And so was there and, and kind of witnessed what happened. It was uh, the unpleasant experience of sort of having to deal with the consequences of, uh, of a fatal derailment. Not good. This thing, this thing here, this rather fetching looking aircraft um, with its lovely square windows, square windows. There we are. This is the Comet, a uh, very sleek looking airliner uh, that fell out the sky several times because it blew up. It had catastrophic depressurizations, um, explosive decompressions, in fact, um, and uh, and blew up several times because of fatigue cracking in the... Actually, it wasn't in the side windows. It was generally in the... I think there's a square window here and possibly another one in the in the roof. And that resulted in cracks, fatigue cracks, that eventually just the whole thing just sort of fell to bits several times. One over Italy, one another couple uh, in other places as well. Um, not good. In any case, Comet... Um, uh, what's happening here? Yeah, there we are. I should get a slice of track for visualization according to Black Peach Peach. Yeah, I, sh I really should. I, I do have some track in here somewhere. I just need to get get my steel wool out, polish it up, and get it on and dump it on my desk. Um, I'll get on it. That's a very good point, actually. Given that Railnet is a thing, I should probably lay that sort of junk around, shouldn't I? Anyway, um, Comet. And so part of this work, they put a Comet fuselage into a giant water tank and proceeded to. Um, load and unload stress and unstress the frame uh lots and lots of times cycling that loading filling it with water and emptying it with water lots and lots and lots of times um and that's how they worked out that exactly the same failure happened they realized that it was fatigue uh glu was the was the uh airframe that they used uh tested it to destruction and this led to re and, and riveting is something that you know it's continued to cause problems for maintenance on 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 the in the aeronautical industry you know, through through into the eighties, so so they were ongoing this research, and what they discovered was that um, basically a, 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 this what we now call um, cold bolt hole expansion uh, is where you uh, kind of use an expendable kind of lubricated sleeve called a mandrel, um, that you you drill the hole using that. Uh, sorry, you use you, you drill the hole uh, cleanly, properly drill the hole with proper equipment, um, put in the mandrel, and use an expansion device to then essentially create a compressive pre-stressing. So, so if you've got the whole, let me get my white uh, thing out here. I realize it's we're already late, folks. It's six minutes past eight. It's already happened. I, I, I will, we're not far off, I promise. There's, a, there's a, a bolt hole. So what you do is you kind of insert this sort of um, this sleeve thing. Uh, you kind of pop this sleeve thing in, and then you expand it out. You, you kind of expand it, and in, in, in doing so, you push it out, and then when when you when you remove the sleeve, get rid of the sleeve, sleeve in the in the bin uh, that goes in the bin, and what you're left with is a, a hole with lots of um, lots of, with a little compressive stresses right the way around, uh, kind of right the way around the the whole hole. Um, and if you can imagine, if you get a little crack form, so a little crack forms, it gets closed up by these uh, compressive stresses. So um, so that's why it's a good thing. So it essentially solves the problem not it, it basically makes the problem go away so um it's so long as you do the so long as you undertake the cold bolt hole expansion uh, process so that was really you know it's rolled out across the network from 1988 onwards and the number of failures plummeted so that basically solved the problem next 
incident. It's the most recent incident, and probably one that's fresh in the mind of a lot of people who are, um, uh, a lot of people who are here uh, watching this video. It's Hatfield, and we're going to go back to this picture. This is, and I think I've talked about this already, haven't I? Uh, I talked about it when we talked about ways for rails to fail. Uh, this is, uh, what is it? From here all the way through to, to here is 35 meters of 35 meters of rail, and it's shattered into about 200 pieces. Shattered like ceramic. Uh, I was talking about getting the into, getting that you know that that five pence piece. Uh, that's not what five p's look like, but I've tried to draw five p there. That five pence piece, you have to get that five pence piece right. You have to get that uh, contact between the wheel and the rail right. It's it's, it's my, as a permanent engineer, design engineer, it's my responsibility to do my best to make sure that that interface is got right. And then it, it then passes on to the main the infrastructure manager, the maintainer, uh, the asset manager to ensure that interface that that contact patch that is uh, you know essentially the the contact between the, the contact point between the train and the infrastructure is maintained as close to permanently as possible, certainly with intolerance. I'm going to go to another picture which shows the incident. So here we are. Um, really unpleasant to to kind of be reminded of it, but this the the train derailed. In fact, I can read read the uh sort of the and, and this is probably the most detailed description of how of the mechanism of the derailment so this is what i'm going to read so you have an understanding of what happened uh it's a very long report so uh there we are um that's yeah the, the course of derailment it's a very long era sequence of events so to give you an idea of how this this worked out this is the this is this is kind of basically what happened. We'll come and you can look at these pictures and we'll we'll talk a little bit while I'm describing this incident. I want you all to come back and tell me what what this rail is. Uh, everyone in the in the in the chat, unless you know the answer immediately, don't don't answer, don't spoil it for everyone. But what is that rail? Um, while while you think about that, I'm going to read this. So uh, the train was going northwards. Uh, so the look it was going locomotive first. Is that right? Is that the right around? I think that is right, isn't it? Um, is that right? Or maybe that's wrong. In any case, the um, the locomotive... Yeah, that must be right, because the locomotive was, was, was first. So the locomotive, with all wheels um, railed, passed over the position of the derailment, um, and the markings on the on the wheels of the locomotive indicate that the wheels passed over a rail fracture. Um and that suggests that the the fracture happened as the as the lo had happened or happened as the locomotive passed over. So the locomotive and the and the, the vehicles, the coaches behind it, passed over this this rail. But the rail was clearly fragmenting under the train because the the markings on the wheels of the subsequent coaches show increased lines markings from more cracks than the than the locomotive did the the class ninety one at the front. Um, and indeed, fragments of rail start striking the undersides of coaches A and B. So you can see that bad things are happening at this point. Um, and the three leading vehicles, all of them still traveling at around about 115 miles an hour, continue with all wheels railed on the down fast line, despite the fact that they'd gone over this disintegrating bit of rail. Um, coaches C, D, E and F encountered the fractured rail with all the bits everywhere and became derailed. And in the process, those vehicles contributed to an increased amount of severity of the rail fragmentation. So what had been a short stretch of disintegrated rail started extending through a rail that, had, you know, really because of the site conditions, had these micro fractures in it that we'll talk about in a second, right the way through it for a huge long length. 
Um, at this point, bogies. Uh, so, so the the bogies from these vehicles had had detached at this point, but because of the wire stra uh, kind of straps connecting them, uh, the suspension fittings and the the design of the coaches, the, the, these bogies generally remained uh, in place despite having essentially sheared off the the vehicle. Um, Coach C started displacing to the left hand side of the down fast line, um, by which that means let me get the red pen over here. Uh, there we are, the red pen. Started displacing in... Oh, that's not very clear at all. Maybe white was a better idea. Uh, let's go with the yellow. Started displacing in this direction here. Uh, that's You can see by the overall way the train was going um, or where it ended up. So coaches A and B continued uh, northwards. So this is... Oh, this is actually a picture in the... Let me have a think. This is... Yeah, yeah, yeah that's fine. So the train continued northwards, still railed and coupled, followed by um, C, D. So that's A and B. You can see a, a rail. That's the locomotive. And this, this is all the colours here. Maybe purple to be better. So here we are. This is coach uh, coach A and B in the locomotive. And then C, D, E and F uh, were derailed. Um, and at this stage, the uh, at this point in the... We're, we're barely fractions of a second into the derailment at this point. Um the service coach and the first two, and the two first class coaches and the DVT, the, the driving van trailer, were still railed and south of the fractured track in the derailment zone. The service car um, then came into contact with and passed over what was just basically now just sleeper, you know, sleepers with no rail on one side. Um, and and this vehicle, as with the previous four vehicles, became derailed. But the debris evidence indicates that at this point the bogies from the service coach became detached. These bogies and the substantial overturning forces caused the service coach to rotate onto its left-hand side. So with if you can imagine the, the, the fact that one rail has just totally disappeared, um, the tray, you know, with increasing lengths of um, of rail being disintegrated, at this point probably the full length of a coach of rail was disintegrated and the coach rolled over. And that motion of it rolling as it started onto these broken sleepers, it continued that rolling motion. And you can see that the it can continue this rolling motion and was being pulled over as it was rolled over. Um uh, essentially, yeah, there's evidence of blue paint on the down slow line at uh, 118 meters beyond the um, the point at which the derailment had started. Uh, sorry, only 73 meters north from the most southerly part of the derailment zone. And so the, the coach had overturned, basically as soon as it encountered that zone of, of disintegrated rail, it, it started overturning. Um, and it swung out left, left, kind of leftwards at this point and pretty rapidly after being fully over, overturned, it struck uh, an overhead line mast. It struck one of these oily masts. In fact, it, this one specifically, you can see what's happened. Uh, and in doing so, it was brought to a, an abrupt halt, a rather tragic and abrupt halt. So this, um, uh, let me just go down here. So, uh, yeah, so this, so this mast, let me just get this right. Da, 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 da. Uh, let me see. I just need to make sure I've got that. Yeah, so this mast basically was torn from its base, penetrated the roof of the service coach, became embedded in it. Debris from the service coach was ejected and distributed into the cess. Um, the leading eight vehicles then slowed down because of the effects of a mixture of wheel braking and the resistance to the ballast, but also this strike. Um, and the, the service coach continued. So actually, this isn't the one it struck. It struck the previous one. Uh, it struck the previous OLE mast and then and then was brought to rest by striking this one here, which will be presumably about 50 metres beyond. So it was struck and disintegrated a mast, uh, which is still embedded in it, kind of uh, a previous span behind. 
and then it was brought to rest. You can see, you can see all the debris sprayed out here. I'm going to get rid of the picture, don't I? Um, you can see all the debris sort of sprayed out uh, kind of in this section here. Uh, and the, the oil mast is just out of shot down this direction. Um, so this is now 400 meters beyond the point, beyond this point where the where the bits of rail had all disintegrated everywhere. Um, and so this, so basically, kind of this mechanism explains really what you know the, the, that that service coach really was damaged severely damaged. Um, the uh, two the kind of the trailing vehicles had been um, kind of embedded deeply into this, so that they kind of followed the service coach, but because of the gap of, of rail, they embedded deeply into the ballast and essentially uh, broke the coupler between the service coach and the preceding and the kind of the following coaches. Um, and so that very abruptly um, stopped uh, behind, kind of, and so the, there's the, the, you can see an image of the two of the kind of the, th the three the two coaches in the DVT kind of parked, uh, not much beyond, uh, kind of beyond the field. In fact, you can see them. I think that you can see them. Uh, I'm just trying to get my bearings in what's where. I think that's probably them there. You can see them kind of parked, uh, kind of a bit further beyond where the failure, where that kind of the the disintegration of the rail was. Anyway, uh, that is that script. Right, that's a good question there, uh, which Gary Keener can answer. Black Peach Peach asks, do the OLE have any kind of ground fail protection? Um, uh, Gary Keener provides the answer, uh, no, they don't. Do they have like a frangible design like street lamps? No, they, they don't have that. Uh, that uh, that's, that, that's Gary's answer for everyone. Um, yeah, lots of people are now going to come up with the invariable questions of, do we make OLE masks too strong? Uh, no, we do not. Um, because we should not be designing a, we should not be designing our infrastructure system to um, deal with derailed trains in this sort of much of a catastrophic uh, condition. We we don't design oily mass to be too strong. They're designed to be just as strong as they need to be. Um, it, the, the the yeah, that's that's my that's my take on it. Particularly in this particular condition situation of, of oily mass. No, I don't think we do. I'm sure Gary can, can uh, will probably back me up on that. There, there's probably a huge long discussion about the the extent to which OLE masts incorporate the the kind of the design, but they're they're sufficiently far from the cess. Um, uh, they're sufficiently far from the cess that they shouldn't be in it. You shouldn't have trains derailing in that way to to, to strike them. Uh, has anyone worked out what this rail is yet? Uh, has it been? Uh, let's see. Oh yeah, that's a, it's a good point. Al Store points out a good bit of trivia that's. Um, uh, yeah, a good bit of trivia, which is that the uh, uh, nine, where is it? Nine one one two three uh, was the loco involved in the in this derailment. It's also the loco that was then involved in Great Heck later on, uh, and so when they actually it was nine one zero two three at the time, wasn't it? So when they then did a bit of an upgrade to them, and it became nine one one should have been nine one one two three. They updated it instead. They got rid of that and they they called it nine one one three two and it's still out and about on the network go and say hello to it um either a lucky or an unlucky train depending on how you uh depending on how you look at it is anyone else having issues with it i should be coming through fine with the pictures you might just need to refresh your screen uh, uh if you're having issues so gary keener yeah basically gary's making the point oh it's not like lamppost or, or road signs which carry little more than wind loading and they're very small OLE masts have to be incredibly strong because they're carrying a huge amount of tension, a huge amount of weight of steel and copper, um, as well as uh, a tremendous amount of force. 
um, you know, a tremendous amount of load in terms of tension of those. The, the, we don't just kind of neatly hang them on like uh, like kind of our, a clothesline. These things, you know, the high speed uh, only is a tension system. It's a, a complex tension dynamic system. And so those masts have to be strong enough to carry those loads. And particularly in this situation, they're carrying um, the, the, the loading from eight different spans. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight different spans load are being transferred into that one mast so it make it light and it will fail uh in other ways without trains near, you know it'll, it'll fail and trains will hit it you don't want that to happen uh this rail here i haven't spotted anyone saying what this rail is uh oh there are a ton of suggestions people just i didn't need to scroll up uh keener cheated because keener probably knew it already uh this was a dark day for the industry yes uh yeah, there's there's lots of people that saying yes, it is the uh, it is the replacement rail that was meant to go in. Ella's right. If Ella's still here, I think she might have gone. But yeah, that's right. Um, it is indeed the replacement rail, and it had been sat there for absolutely ages, with the intention of it being replaced and, and not being replaced. So, number one, this was a failure, primarily as a result of bad management practice. You know, uh, it it kind of was one of the la kind of one of the few kind of the last few um, uh, incidents that really put the boot in to having privately managed, privately kind of uh, owned and run infrastructure. It was a terrible idea and it has now ended and hopefully will never be reversed because having, uh, particularly with RailTrack, RailTrack were a kind of a, a, a management consultancy that happened to be in charge of railway infrastructure. They, they saw themselves as management consultants. They did not see themselves as uh, operators of a railway with all the responsibilities and need for, for knowledge and wisdom that that requires. Uh, so that's the number one reason why Hatfield happened. But the other reason why Hatfield happened is because of um, fatigue cracking through a very long, shallow curve. So you've got a very long, shallow curve. And you, again, it's another form of fatigue cracking. So it's not fatigue cracking in the in a, in a joint, in the bolt hole like you had at um, Hither Green and El, in an Elgin. It's not a fatigue failure of a weld, um, which was a contributing factor to Aliskelf. Uh, uh, no, no, this was a fatigue failure of the physical steel section itself. Um, and that steel section, what you get, you get what's called um, kind of head checking, which you get these very obvious telltale sort of, um, let, me, let me go big face. This time I'm not going to forget to unbig face because I'm just going to leave this up in front of me so I remember. Um, you have that, these kind of, you've got the rail, and in fact, going to go back to no big face because uh, i'm going to draw it i'm going to draw what head checks look like because they're so distinctive um head checks look like this they have so if you've got the head of the rail if you're looking kind of side on at the head of the rail um and kind of this is and if i do a bit of a um if i kind of do the, cr the cross section and kind of the rail head looks like this and so this is the kind of curving over bit at the top of the rail the the head checks kind of look like this and they kind of have these sort of very distinctive uh, kind of cutting. And I think I showed pictures of this in the rail failure. And they often have these little sort of uh, other diagonal sort of shapes. And they look fairly innocuous when you sort of see, so this is the kind of the head of the rail here. They look fairly innocuous when you look at them kind of without understanding what's going on inside. But actually what's happening, if you, if you kind of take a slice of what's happening inside the rail, these are telltales for a crack, for, for cracks inside the rail. So this is our... This is a, a section of our, a kind of a slice of our rail now. There's the, the position of the rail head. Actually, these are hiding cracks that can run right down deep inside the rail um, and indeed had done. That's what had happened here. All these cracks had sort of reached the point of of no return. They, they were kind of catastrophic crack length and the thing just shattered like glass. Um, there we are. 
Indeed, yeah. So, so Gary Keener pointing out the, the needs. For, oh, Dan P is with us. Um, yeah, so the RCF, they, so they, they kind of have this sort of Y shape, but actually they look they look kind of, yeah, you could describe it as an S shape. They kind of look like this sort of kind of shape. There's pictures on the rail failure one that Dan was with us uh, last time. But in any case, they, 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 this, this sort of shape here is, is very distinctive. It's very, very distinctive. Uh, I mean, I suppose I could try and find that uh, that shape. I mean, if actually, let's go into here because do, 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 do. I bet there's a picture I can pull up. Uh, uh, do, 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 do. Bear with me a second. I'm going to get the picture. There, there will be a picture. Ah, there. Perfect. So if I go into here and pull up this port here, uh, open with, uh, get this up. So uh, we need to go down to the appendices for this one. And I said there are going to be some, some, some sort of unpleasant. So yeah, you can see the, the condition of, so you can see what, what happens. So you can see the coaches uh, here is 912. No, it's, it's, anyway. Um, there we are. And the, you can see the, the service coach having been, there's the service coach there. Uh, you can see these are the coaches that, that, that Coach H dug in and fell to, to one side, but didn't really make much progress and, and, and wasn't, basically hadn't didn't suffer nearly as much as um coach the service coach coach g uh, did anyway that's kind of not the point for this one we want to go up and look at the head checking there we are uh here we go this is what the the head checks look like this is what the um there we are. this is what some of these cracks look like it's not very it's this, this, what are you doing why has that happened no come on i'm using edge because edge I don't know why I'm using edge. I have no excuses. There's the shattered rail. Um, there's what uh, there's what the head the railhead looked like through here. You can see it's falling to bits. Lots of these checks. Lots of bits of you know kind of shelling with the rail kind of falling to bits. Just not good. Um, really not not in, in good good condition. Um, and you can see these the, kind of if you cut the, the slice in the rail, you can see that these fractures are just wrecking. You know they're just wrecking the cross sectional area of the of the rail and weakening it hugely. Um, Oh yeah, here's some pictures of the wheels to show what the wheels had suffered as they'd gone over the top. Anyway, lots of lots of stuff in there, as well as, um, of course, images of uh, the condition of the of the site for people inside this train um, suffering as a result of our failure uh, as a, as an industry. Um, you can see what's happened here: the absolute mess in the service coach. Just absolutely tragic. Really, really appalling. Um, yeah not good not good so that was hatfield and so these are all the incidents here um these are all of the various incidents that uh that i've listed uh in in kind of today's episode so you've got hither green that we started with uh tatton hall which is about the so, so hither green was the bolt hole uh, fatigue cracking failure resulting in end, and there we are so it's bolt holes um uh, tatton hall was uh was the lateral buckling Oliskelf was the failure of a welded joint. Elgin was again another bolt hole failure, and then Hatfield was uh, about fatigue cracking uh, of the rail. And Hatfield resulted in four fatalities. It's a very high speed incident. You notice all of these are high speed incidents. In order to get fatality uh, with a failure like this, generally you need to be going at, at decent speeds because even even weak coaches like Mark Twos, you know Mark Ones, Twos, and Threes, which are not very for nowadays. Uh, none of those are very crashworthy coaches, but even with Mark ones that are incredibly uncrashworthy, um, speeds less than four, kind of fifty miles an hour, generally they're still good enough to they're robust enough to survive those kind of those energies. But much above that, 
and the energy has become too much for those coaches to cope with. So that's those are those incidents. These are the incidents. And, and, and overall, and so I've talked about kind of what we've learned as an industry. We've got a much better understanding, particularly after Hatfield. Hatfield kicked off a huge amount of development of understanding crack f- propagation, fatigue uh, propagation, the way that rails behave under loading. Um, they still influence um, the way that we design. So one of the things that influences the way that these, that the, these, failure, that these cracks form is, is how much can't we apply to the track. It's how much we tilt it over. Um, please tell me I'm still, yeah, good. Um, how much tilt uh, kind of can't we apply? So that's where you um, can't is where you've, uh, this is a, a sleeper with uh, zero can't and here is a sleeper with uh, lots of can't applied to it. Um, and the amount of, so that can't, uh, the amount of can't we apply depends on how much lateral uh, force we want to, or lateral accelerations through curves we want to balance out. And generally we don't balance them all out. We balance about 50% of them out and we because we want some lateral force for steering curve purposes for um actually because you you want to distribute the loads but also because not all the trains are going at full speed through that curve so there are all sorts of reasons why you don't apply cant to match perfectly those lateral forces um, and the extent to which you balance that cant influences the formation of these of these sorts of fatigue failures on both the low and high rail you get different types of of, of cracking forming on the low and high rail depending on where that balance of lateral accelerations is so we've had influences on on management we've had it uh, you know from an engineering perspective i'm ignoring the overall management issues that resulted in rail track going kaput and jarvis going kaput you've got engineering management you've got um understanding of uh, from a design perspective what we need to do to get the the rails to behave right and also we've got even more uh, improved uh, systems for looking for those cracks so not just um not just uh, ultrasonics now but also you've got eddy current testing of rails uh, on the move to make sure that we're spotting these issues also you've got pattern recognition the plane line pattern recognition train and some of the other network rail kind of yellow trains pick up visual images of the of the railhead so if they're spotting those cracks forming visually in the top of the rail um we and you know we've just developed a far better understanding but how does that kind of work in practice so generally all this stuff filters into the rssb um grief it's half past already this got longer i was hoping this would be a short one this stuff all filters into the rssb the railway safety and standards board which in turn, they, they do extra research, and that research ultimately feeds back into the standards. So what standards do we have here? We've got uh, the, the European TSIs. We've got the uh, the British standards and the Euronorms up here. Uh, what are these? These are the railway group standards. These are kind of... So these ones uh, are all... Well, certainly these two are both the kind of the legally binding framework within which we design railways. And then down here, we've got the network rail standards, the two main track ones, um, 2102 and 2049, the, um, the design and construction track and the, and the TDH. Uh, there's the tdh track design handbook and um, this is this isn't a legal these aren't legal documents but they are, they do form part of the legally binding um risk uh, kind of the license for network rail to run the infrastructure so um i wouldn't get very far as a design engineer if i suggested i wasn't going to pay attention to these but the railway group standards and the uh the uh, tsis the technical specifications for interoperability the uh, the eu regulations eu commission regulation rather um these european commission regulations sorry but they are eu standards basically these are legal these are legally binding documents and um hopefully st- the tsis still will be post brexit frankly because they're they're a good set of standards to for us to generally if nothing else for our engineers to understand because most of the world is starting to get well, a lot of the world is starting to use tsis as their standard set of design stand, uh, kind of uh, requirements so for us to stop un- using and understanding would be a really bad move anyway they filter into standards and standards don't stand still they constantly develop as we develop our understanding of um 
of, of, of the railway, of forces, and indeed as the way that we use the railway changes, these standards update as well. New technologies, new technologies for assessment, for, for maintenance, for you know, new processes, all that stuff filters through. And as, and as we as designers, we can filter into those, uh, those as well. So we feed into, you know, we, uh, as a designer, if, I'm, if there's something that's coming up that I think is wrong or is, is something that I can, ch I, I can challenge it, I can challenge it with the RSSB, and it, it will get, if enough people are making the same challenge, it will get, or indeed if enough people are doing something slightly different from the standards, uh, you know, uh, the standards are, are, are kind of a, an accepted practice. But if we're doing something that doesn't shift or, or, or avoid managing the risk, but just manages the risk in a different way, if enough people do it in a different way, that will eventually become part of the standards as well. But you have to exhibit that you're managing that risk in the same way you're making things either as safe or safer than they are already. Um, and there's all sorts I could talk about that. But that's how we learn from these tragic incidents. 2031, it's time we ended. That was a whiz through. I don't know what anyone's learned from that, if anything, but I just wanted to go through those incidents and what, how they've influenced the way that Plain Line, Permanent Way, looks today. Um, yes. And that's how we end up with Plain Line track looking really um, sexy, like this lovely picture from... Um, uh, that was uh, this is like the Staffordshire Alliance, the poster boy of the Staffordshire Alliance. Uh, this is the the Norton Bridge kind of diversion, the new bit of railway line built there to uh, avoid a silly flat junction, um, and then build a seg grid separate one elsewhere. Anyway, it's quite a nice picture, some very straight track. That's nice, isn't it? West Coast Mainliner. Anyway, oh, um, are RSSB the successor to BR Research? Asked Chris McKenna. No, they're not. Uh, to an extent, they've done. They, they've they've occupy they they do drive some of the research but no they're not we, the, the industry is lacking a single focus of research theoretically um bodies like ukraine which is pulling all the universities kind of together are supposed to emulate that but we are so far from the body of research that the vault the volume of research that was done by br so far from it just now and it's too it's a great shame because at the point at which we're you know we talk about the fact that now is the time for all these wonderful great innovations we are continuing to not invest at the same you know if you want innovation you need to have an industry-led uh, and well-funded body that drives research that industry understands and that's kind of what ukraine's supposed to be but um uh jury's still out and, and the rssb almost acts in that role if you like as targeting where research needs to happen and, and they have a lot of their own um kind of uh, uh reports the ti number reports that they do that you can go in and, and, and most people can i think most of them are available for all the public to see yeah, theoretically all of them are but their website's a bit clunk, a bit uh, clunky but um yeah worth going in um yeah a pleasure thanks everyone who's saying they uh, they learned a lot our problems still around on heritage railways yeah good grief i'll probably do a rail natter on the failures that, ra that heritage railways see and give you instructions if anyone runs or works on heritage railways of what you need to be looking out for and doing to fix some of these problems because i've done all of the above I've uh, yeah I've got the experience on the on the big railway, but actually I've I've done track walking and and, and infrastructure management on heritage railways uh, myself, so I can give you a bit of a steer on the things that need to happen there, and all within a, a budget of an assumed budget of zero pounds a year as well. Um, right, that is that's that for for the, for the rail natter. Thanks everyone. Uh, as ever, I don't know how that worked in audio form. Lots of pictures, but uh, given that I was doing a bad job of getting the pictures in the right place, probably works better in audio form than it did in visual form. Never mind. What a show. Um. Yeah, do indeed keep listening. Uh, thanks to Heel for for putting them up on the on the system. At some point, Heel's going to get bored of doing this and he'll get a life, and I'll be lost because I'll have no one who can actually make these into magical podcasts from what they are now. Um, oh, the the usual adverts. Uh, Patreon. Wait a minute, I should probably make my face disappear briefly, shouldn't I? Uh, Patreon and Discord and PayPal. Uh, all the, you know what happens in these things. I've said it enough times in these episodes. Um, 
Oh, what else? Uh, yeah, so uh, the Railways Archive. Gary Keener is with us. Gary, uh, that was a chaos episode. Not not a particularly great uh, recommendation of... of, of uh, in any case, I'm waffling. Basically, all of the reports I look at come from the Railways Archive. And even when I did my thesis, which was on this sort of stuff uh, years and years ago, uh, I've not made a good account of myself for kind of understanding this stuff in detail, but I, uh, theoretically, I sort of do because I wrote my thesis on it, on, on rail failures, uh, with a Heritage Railway context, actually. Uh, Graham, uh, was it Graham? Oh, in any case, Herit- whoever was suggesting the Heritage... Uh, oh, no, it was David. Sorry, forgive me. It was David Shepherd. Yeah, with a, a view on Heritage Railways. In any case, I relied heavily on the Railways Archive. And it's at the point now, I think very recently, reached the point where uh, the Railways Archive has a pr- almost in total saturation of, of, of incident reports now. Gary, correct me on that, right? There's going to be a 45-second delay. But I think that, um, yeah, the uh, it's pretty much got everything there, right? I, I, I saw a tweet a tweet thread by the Railways Archive explaining such, so that's really good. Um, uh, Gary, you, yeah, this picture, this is like, the website is good, but it, it it's it's maybe a bit, you know, mid-2000s-y, but that's fine. Uh, is that possibly why Gary's lolling? Because the logo of the railways archive. This is the this is this is like double resolution. I had to blow it up, and you can see the you can count the pixels. In any case, it's a fantastic website, and and uh, if not being advertised, it, it it deserves your support. But it's a fantastic resource for all sorts of things, not just crash reports, but also loads of fantastic documentation across the British rail eras. Um, uh, well, that doesn't sound good. You have got about a thousand still to publish. I think they're still um. They're generally the minor incidents, though, right? And that's of, of, out of lots and lots and lots of other reports. It's, it's a, a, a vast minority. Um, loads of other interesting documents. There's loads of stuff about APT on there, for example, which is quite fun. Lots of great documentation, honestly. Really, really good resource. Um, <laughs> Gary Keener, the website is awful. Just go for the content. <laughs> I didn't say it. Gary did. It's not awful, actually. It works fine. Um, I'm sure someone could... I'm sure people with, like, time... And money and who aren't full-time engineers could could come up with a better one, but that's not what not what the people who run the website are, is it, Gary? In any case, Railways Archive, go there. Um, oh, if you're interested in things that look like trains moving around, uh, yeah, the latest episode of this happened earlier in the week. Um, the it's been quite fun actually. This I've enjoyed it. Um, uh, episode eleven was earlier this week, and I might do another one. Um, and I might do another stream this week, but we'll see. Uh, engineer plays and i cock around with railways over history in history and it's kind of fun right more importantly what's happening this christmas for rail natter because i'm taking a holiday um you've got three episodes coming up all pre-recorded um but you should join live anyway because they'll be coming up as premieres um and they they're 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 good episodes there's a they're they're really good fun episodes uh this one is actually not being recorded yet because i'm recording it with bonnie uh early like actually i think i'm recording it with bonnie on the tuesday night before the wednesday night um but yeah don't worry about it it was because of the breakdown and that happened last rail natter with tech caused the other one to be delayed as well don't worry about it in any case um three episodes you're getting the tea so un- unusually the patreon people normally know exactly what episodes are coming months in advance or uh, you know a few of the ones that are happening months in advance but everyone's getting the teas this time because it's christmas and otherwise i won't be able to advertise them so episode 41 what do the railways do at christmas um bonnie is joining us to talk about bonnie price is joining us to talk about what the railways got up to at christmas um oh yeah it'll just be our perspective respective perspectives um i'll share a bit what i get up to she'll share a bit what she gets up to um, and we'll explain why things happen at Christmas and, and work that happens at, at Christmas and, and New Year, uh, why it's not spread out the rest of the year. Should be an interesting discussion, that one. Bonnie's a lot of fun and also hugely knowledgeable and also hugely responsible. She has like seriously major project that she's working on at the moment that hopefully she'll talk a bit about. The next episode is going to be, crikey, I'm 2038, 
episode 42, Snow versus Railways. We're going to talk about Snow and Alex Priestley and I and his um, uh, Christmas bow tie. And we're going to talk about uh, Snow and what Snow does to Railways. Uh, it's kind of like a, a spin-off from his Weather versus Railways episode. And uh, that, that'll that be, when will that be? So that's, episode 41 will be the 23rd of December, which means that episode 42 will be the 20, oh, well, 20th, presumably, actually. In any case, this will be like just before Christmas and then in the interbellum between Christmas and New Year. And then in the New Year, the first 2021 Rail Natter episode will be with Justin Rosniak of Well, There's Your Problem podcast. Uh, and he's going to be talking to, us, talking to us about the fact that US railroads can actually be good. They can be good, actually. We're going to find out about that. Or maybe we're not, because I, I, half the time we ended up saying, oh, that's actually really annoying, and Justin would laugh about something being odd. But it was a really, really fun episode. Justin's brilliant fun. So um, uh, everyone is going to be uh, is going to be uh, joining that very long episode. Good grief, it ran on long. Uh, the Alex one was quite short. We kept that nice and snappy. The Justin one was quite long. We, that did, we did not keep that snappy. I, I've edited it down, and it's still two hours. I can only apologize. But uh, it's slow-form podcasting, right? You'll just kind of catch up with it a bit. Um, right, so that was that. All it remains for me to do is uh, is, is sort of say, uh, is catch my breath and say... <laughs> Yeah, we're widening the canon. Well, there's your problem podcast is now in, we're integrating Rail Natter into the Well, there's your po- problem podcast um, universe. Uh, I don't know what that means. In any case, uh, thanks to everyone for joining. Gary, Dan, uh, good to see you both here. Ella and and, and uh, Sarah and David and Phil and Bjorn and everyone. It's been Chris. Oh, it's lovely to see you all. Julie as well. Good to see you, Julie. I'm glad you enjoyed this one. Found it interesting. Um, that was a fun episode. Sorry, I did a. a hackneyed job of it but uh yeah you know you know what my brain's like dashing all over the place hopefully the point of these isn't that you come out of it having encyclopedically learned things it's hopefully it kind of makes you kind of think oh it kind of equips you with ideas of what to google to learn more about it i suppose is, is what real matter facilitates um in any case uh it's we've been running for so long now how long is it? an hour 41 minutes i'm so sorry i'll see you in the new year for the live one these next ones i might try and dro- drop into the chat uh, but um in any case have a really good christmas um uh flip the v's at 2020 what a what a year it's been uh and have yeah have a nice holiday season yuletide greetings uh, one and all um I'm, I'm an atheist i don't really believe in christmas so whatever but the christmas holiday is nice uh yuletide greetings all season's greetings and more importantly uh happy hogmanay to everyone uh make sure you get absolutely tonto um unless you've got a kidney problem in which case or a liver problem i wouldn't recommend that um <laughs> yeah and, and do so obviously from a safe location don't do it if you're then going to go go to work the day after that's that's important to know like that's our safety moment get drunk but do so responsibly um <laughs> cheerio everyone cheerio bye cheerio